As we approach the tumultuous time of the tribulation, there are a few things we need to keep in mind to set the stage. First, a split second after the rapture, there is not one Christian on earth, not one believer. Second, just as in the flood, God has every reason and every right to inflict on this unbelieving generation the wrath that is about to come. He has every right to do that. God's Word testifies over and over again of God's long-suffering. We, each of us, have experienced that in our own lives. Even as He has released measure, measured out portions of it over the millennia since Adam, God has held back the full force of His righteous fury until the day after the rapture of the church as well as at the close of the millennium. Third, don't fall into the easy habit of thinking the events of the tribulation are being orchestrated by Satan or his servants. Antichrist, the false prophet, Adele. Or that the misery of the period is, period is all their idea. The Bible makes it clear that God and His Christ are running the show. Just as He did in the life of Job, God, for a brief period, grants Satan the opportunity to do his worst. And he does. But in that, Satan is only implementing the foreordained plan of God. God has planned this from the very beginning. And he has every right to pour out this wrath. Now let's begin with the word itself. Any study of what we call the tribulation would be made much easier if the Bible had used a unique term for that period in future history. Then you could read passages in the prophecies, the Old Testament, even the New Testament. You could, you could read and say, ah, yes, he's talking about the tribulation. And you... The same Greek word, thlipsis, translated tribulation to refer to the seven-year period immediately following the rapture, is also used first by Paul to describe what awaits him in his journeys. In Acts 20, he says this, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. There's our word, thlipsis, afflictions. In 1 Corinthians 7.28, to describe what awaits one if they marry. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet, such will have trouble in their life. And I'm trying to spare you. Trouble. Flipses. 
Finally, by James to describe the lives of orphans and widows. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. world. Distress. Because of this, it can be sometimes challenging to isolate references to the tribulation. Then as well, we have the two terms, tribulation and great tribulation, sometimes used interchangeably, both of which refer to the period immediately after the rapture, but which are used in different ways in different contexts. I suggest we use the following guidelines. In comparison to the common tribulation we experience simply by dwelling in flesh on this earth, the entirety of the seven-year period can rightly be called the Great Tribulation because it'll be much worse than anything we've seen yet. If, however, we're confining the context to just those seven years, then the second three and a half years of that period comprise the Great Tribulation. For it will be decidedly worse than the first half. Adam, could I have the chart, please? Thank you. Now, placing the Bema seat and the marriage supper of the Lamb. If one peruses, don't, don't go too dark, because they, they'll need to look in there. But I appreciate the thought. I always look good in a spotlight. Okay, placing the Bema seat and marriage supper of the Lamb. As one peruses older eschatological charts and books that address the eschatological events, one sees these two components of the last things, the Bema seat and the marriage supper of the Lamb floating around to different places on the timeline. That is, these events, these are events that are challenging to place, and cases can indeed be made for the various options. The events in general described in Revelation do not necessarily represent a contiguous narrative thread. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they skip around, they, they are taken out of order, sometimes they are in order. The bride, that is the church, preparing for the marriage of the Lamb is referenced both in Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9, and in chapter 21, verse 2. In the first, it seems clearly to refer to the redeemed while in the latter it states clearly that it refers to the New Jerusalem. More on this in a moment. Some see the supper or feast of this marriage being never-ending. just goes on continually. Some see it as a singular event. I'll be addressing my reasons for their placement in a moment, but right now I'd like to focus once again 
on the poetic symmetry of what I've termed the tribulation fork. I don't know if that's unique with me or not. I don't know if I invented that or not, but I didn't find it anywhere else. It just occurred to me as a fork in the road. That we see at the rapture, at the end of the church age, there's a split. On earth, tribulation. In heaven, or at least sky, but probably heaven, celebration. And I find that remarkable. When I comprehended this, I, it represented for me one of those glorious, breathtaking revelations one periodically discovers when studying such things. As I mentioned in the fourth session, think of the rapture along with the subsequent events in heaven as the end times reenactment of Noah's Ark and the tribulation on earth as the end times reenactment of the flood. That is about to happen. And before it happens, Christ comes to take the church out of it. And we're up there with Him. While everything is going south on earth, really downhill, where subterfuge and misery are seemingly being orchestrated by Antichrist, and where the Lord God and His Christ will soon pour out their wrath upon those who have rejected them, all believers in and followers of Christ Jesus prior to the rapture are safely with Him in heaven, having their work for Him judged, receiving their various rewards, and sitting down to a joyous wedding feast. Now, in our next several sessions, we'll be looking at the events on earth. Here we look at what will be happening for believers in heaven or in the skies. First, the bema or judgment seat. The Greek bema translated judgment seat. So bema, bema judgment seat is redundant. Of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. There the Apostle Paul gives us first the reason for it. Turn please to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's read verses 9 to 10. Oops, turn on. It's on now. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Is that ESV or NIV? Uh-huh. No. I, I'm just... I'm dwelling on that word evil. I would take a little issue with that. 
I'll, in a, I'll address it in a moment. I'll address it right here. Ah. Frankly, and that brings it out. That word, that translation, evil, brings it out. The case could be made that this passage in Paul's second letter could refer to either the first judgment of believers or the second great white throne judgment, which is of those who have been who have rejected Christ. The wording is rather flexible, especially that word translated in the NASB, bad, in yours, evil. The Greek is kakon, K-A-K-O-N, which can mean something evil or something of no worth, which is what I believe it, how it is used here, of no worth. In our next passage, we'll see that what happens to things of no worth. Something being of no worth does not necessarily mean it's evil. So, In his first extant letter to the Corinth church, Paul goes into greater detail about this judgment. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is one of our foundational passages for this judgment. 1 Corinthians 3. Let's read verses 10 to 15. So we have a we have a split family here. I have the NASB, so you'll get a better reading. God bless you. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Smelling of smoke. Every one of us is given a gift by God, at least one. Every believer with the Holy Spirit indwelling has a gift from God. That gift is something not to play with, but to work with. And so much of what Paul writes in this first letter to the Corinthians talks about that. Notice that that whole passage is all about what we have done. It's not about who we are. It's about what we have, our works. Everything that happens there is happening to works. And the works come out of our gifts. We each have been given spiritual gifts to use. Not to be proud about, not to be... Not to be flashy about, but to put to work. And that's what this passage is talking about, and that's what the judgment is about, the Bema seat. What did you do with the gifts I gave you? That's what it's all about. 
Have you been working for me? Christ will ask. How effective was it? Were you glorifying yourself or were you glorifying me? That's what it has to do with. It's not about the believer himself or herself. It's about what we have done with our gifts. With his mention of the element of fire as a component of the judgment, depending on one's position on the last things, some say that Paul is speaking of the final great white throne of judgment that takes place at the end of the millennium because fire will be involved there. I don't believe that to be the case, and most do not. At that last judgment, it will be the unbelievers who are consigned to the eternity of flames, not their works. They will be consigned to the flames. In this passage in 1 Corinthians, the flames are used to determine the value of what you have done. If it burns up, it was worthless. If it remains, then it is added to our account. Now, while at the judgment of believers only, wherever it takes place, it will be some of their works that are consumed by fire, not the individual. That passage is all about the quality of our works. Not whether our gift was any more prominent or more flashy than someone else's gift. It's what we did with the gifts given to us. Some of us have been given the gift of preaching, of being the pastor of a church, an elder. Some have been given the gift of cleaning the toilets. Both are gifts. It's what we did with those gifts given to us. That's what will be judged. As I said before, this is not just some esoteric study of what's going to happen well into the future. We have no control over it. It's, we're just, it's just going to happen. This should be affecting your life right now. Well before this happens. I hope well before then. might happen in the next. Don't mean it. The picture in this passage is that if much of yeah the picture in this passage is that if much of his or her deeds are required to be burned up because they were worthless then the believer just might leave the place smelling of smoke but indeed he himself will be saved that's what it says none of this has to do with eternal salvation it has to do with what we've done in the name of Christ or not. Every believer will stand before his or her Lord for an examination of the work they have turned in in his name. Some of the works will survive the trial and a reward will be rendered. Personally, I don't put very much stock in this talk about crowns. 
We, we may be given a crown as a, I mean, God's Word says we'll be given a crown. The reason I don't dwell on it very much is because what do the elders in heaven do with their crowns? They place them at the feet of their God. You're not going to be walking around heaven with a crown. Look at the stack of crowns I have on my head. Wasn't I great? No, no, no. That may pass through your hand just for a moment. What do we do with any reward from Christ? We give it back. He is the one do the glory, not us. Other works will not survive, but be consumed by fire and no reward for them. Those works burned up will be forthcoming. Yet none of this will threaten the believer's eternity with Christ. Let me press pause here. Any thoughts, any questions about that before we move on? Okay. Ah. A while back, I meditated on what is the pure motivation to walk with Christ and the whole issue of crowns or rewards or the love of Christ compels us. Do you have any thoughts on those two? (laughs) I believe it was last week or next week. I'm getting mixed up on these. Where in God's Word it says, don't look for applause now. Don't look for reward now. Because if you get it now, that's it. Nonetheless, another reason I don't dwell on crowns is that I don't dwell on rewards. Because, or future rewards. God's Word says I should get some. Some might get burned up too. But what I spend more time thinking about, and I think perhaps you did too, is that serving Christ, a life filled with serving Christ and loving Him, being devoted to Him, is already rewarded. We are overflowing with blessings. Sadly, some we don't even recognize. Or we say, well, thank you, and we forget about it. But our lives are filled to overflowing with rewards for serving Him. It's like that passage this morning from James, the last verse. You might save someone from having their soul destroyed. That's a pretty good reward right there. So very often my thoughts are, 
I don't really need any future rewards. I'm filled overflowing now. But if he wants to do something later, that's fine. That's up to him. It's up according to his will. Now, the placement. These passages do not tell us where to place the believer's judgment on the timeline of the eschaton. In a number of older charts that I've included in my resources, the the authors blithely insert under the judgment seat of Christ for believers a reference to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You may note that I did not do that. Well, I've read and reread those chapters and cannot find anywhere in them a mention of believers before the Bema seat. It's just not there. Chapter 4 is all about the overwhelming majesty and glory and holiness and power of God the Father. Chapter 5 introduces the Lamb standing as if slain. That is Christ Jesus, whose role in this scene is to open the book with seven seals. No one can do it except the Lamb slain. and release the corresponding events upon the earth, inaugurating the tribulation. Some take the position that since chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation are all about the churches on earth, seven specifically, and chapter 4 immediately, it says, after these things, switches to heaven with no more mention of the churches on earth, that this indicates that the church is no longer there, but now in heaven. Well, that may be. Sure, yeah. But even if that's the case, that doesn't mean that the Bema seat occurs immediately after the rapture. We just don't have much help in placing it. That's why it seems to float on all the different charts that we see from others. What we have instead of solid statements of sequence are hints in subtext. So, permit me to set forth my reasons for placing the Bema seat where I have. First and least, at the end of Luke's abbreviated version of the Olivet Discourse, that, was, that is Christ's eschatological discourse, the most complete version of it is in Matthew. But if you turn to Luke 21... Jesus says something that hints at a connection between the rapture and our standing before His throne. Luke chapter 21. Let's read verses 34 to 36. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, I asked Renee to read that because I needed NIV. The King James, the New King James, the NIV says it well. Well, Renee. Don't worry, I'll balance that out later. Uh, 
The NASB and ESV say, well, let's see, the NASB says that you may have strength to escape all these things. Whoa, wait a minute. You mean I have to have strength to... I'm in trouble. I'm in deep trouble. I, don't, I think the other renderings are, are better. But anyway, this is admittedly thin, but one can at least see a logical progression from the rapture. Quote, escape all that is about to happen to those who live on the face of the whole earth, end quote, followed by standing before the Son of Man. Okay, well, that's, we don't know exactly when it does. It's not very specific, but it says one and then the other. Second, in Luke 14, Jesus invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal. <laughs> I just love these. I just love these passages. This whole world has no idea who Jesus really is. And a lot of us don't have a good idea of who He is. I love these passages. The people in this world say, oh, Jesus is this sweet milk toast. He loves everyone. And He he just smiles, this wan smile. And He's placid. Notice that He gets invited to this guy's house who's a Pharisee, a religious leader, and He starts telling him how He's supposed to hold His meals in the future. Now, would you do that? Would you be invited to someone's house for a meal? Sit down, and during the meal, turn to your host and say, now listen, the next time you do this, don't invite these people. Invite these people, these other people. Would you do that? You think, how discourteous, how rude. Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus does here. Luke 14, verses 12 to 14, offers his host some counsel on who to invite to a meal the next time. Let's read it. Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So here again, the idea of reward is closely associated with the resurrection of the righteous. Resurrection of the righteous or just, it's the rapture. You'll be repaid after that. Last, not only is there poetic justice in believers being judged for their works for Christ, while unbelievers on earth are receiving His wrath for their rejection of Christ. There's also a logical order to each believer's work being, as it were, put through the furnace of refining to get rid of the chaff before sitting down to the celebratory wedding feast. Twice in the Revelation we read of Christ's bride being made ready for the groom. Turn please to Revelation 19. Almost to the end. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 8. 
Is it okay if I sing this? <laughs> this is a great song. No, Dennis, you can't. <laughs> it's a really good song. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Next verse. Oh, sorry. It was granted. That's not in the song. The next verse isn't in the song. Okay. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, pure and bright. But I got to read hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. That's in the song. <laughs> okay. But would you read verse eight again, please? You're not going to let me read ever again. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's in a different paragraph there. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. That's the punchline. That's what. That. <laughs> uh, it's all those grandkids. If you just didn't have so many grandkids, you'd be able to think more clearly. <laughs> That's your blessing now. No rewards later. That's those say reward. Okay. Well, now, if we are clothed in only the righteous acts of the saints, which we finally got to, for the wedding, it certainly must mean that we've already passed through the cleansing judgment that rids us of any acts or works worthy of only being burned up. Right? Does that track? 1 Corinthians 3.15 if we are wearing certain clothes at the wedding, which are our righteous acts, well, we must have some we must have gotten rid of the ones that weren't righteous. So the Bema seat comes before the wedding, or before in the wedding supper. We cannot say if the believer's judgment occurs immediately after the rapture but it's my contention that it occurs before the marriage and subsequent marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as to that. In chart 6, there is no real significance to the spans or widths of the blocks, Bema seat and wedding and marriage supper of the Lamb. I've made the case for the Bema seat judgment taking place prior to the marriage and thus the marriage takes place next it is doubtful possible but doubtful that the bema seat and marriage and supper each literally fill the entirety of the seven year tribulation if we take the latter portion of the revelation text as a relatively sequential timeline of events which we do the marriage comes just after the fall of the harlot babylon and the fourfold hallelujah celebrating God's victory over the evil that has transpired during the seven-year tribulation. If you're struggling to understand the purpose of the tribulation and the need for God to pursue it, and if you are now, just wait till we look at all the details of what occurs. Verses 1-6 to six will help place it into the heavenly perspective. Revelation 19, same chapter. Let me read verses 1 to 6. This is, you might think of this as the, the worship service after the tribulation. 
After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! which means praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. From that passage, one thing I glean from it is that the throne in that worship service They're declaring the truth. God had every right to pour out His wrath on those people. Most of whom, most of it is pointed toward, well, we can't say most, but the primary reason for the tribulation is Israel. He's pouring out His wrath on His chosen people because they've rejected Christ as the Messiah. Some commentators conclude that verses 7 to 8, the two that follow, represent John's, the ones we read, represent John's foreshadowing of the later passage in chapter 21 that refers to the descending New Jerusalem uh, Quote, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, perhaps. But note this. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Very declarative. This is what's happened. This is who's doing it. It's passive, has made herself ready, but the bride's the bride. Now, compare this to twenty-one, chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, <laughs> those are not synonymous. Jerusalem looks like a bride. Visually. One is representation. One is the real thing. I can vouch for it that there is no more beautiful sight for a groom than the sight of his bride coming down the aisle toward him. And that's how beautiful will be the sight of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, as beautiful as a bride adorned for her husband. 
But this does not seem to be the actual wedding moment in chapter 20 to 21. Most older charts show the marriage supper taking place near the end of the tribulation period on earth. Just before Christ returns in judgment with His church. And that's where I would place it. Somewhere near the end. We cannot say what the heavenly wedding and marriage supper will be like. We have only the biblical picture of the earthly version to go by. David Guzik helps us out. Quote, In Jewish culture, the marriage supper was the best banquet or party everyone knew. It was the top. It always was an occasion of tremendous joy. End quote. And it would go on for days. It was the big deal. In fact, I've read, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I've read that the priests would even kind of disengage the commandments during that time. Say, it's all right, don't worry about breaking the law. Go ahead and have fun. They didn't want anything to get in the way of the, of the joy of the moment. I don't know if that's true, but it's a nice story. In the tribulation fork, we see the unfiltered wrath of God against those who reject His Son. Set against the love and care of His Son for those who did not. And I can think of no more dramatic contrast than this. For some, tribulation. For others, celebration. Now next week we'll be looking at, we'll start in on the tribulation and introduction. But for right now, any thoughts? Any questions? Complaints? Well, I'm going to stop leaving time for this. That's all right. (laughs) Yeah, it has been quite a while since Isla stood up here and sung. Hmm? Ah. Well, all right then. Let's close in prayer. Father God, Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the time it takes. Thank you for being long-suffering, being patient, giving us plenty of time to understand your word. Sometimes it's not easy. But we thank you for your word and we pray that its truth 
will guide every moment of our lives, not just in the future, but here and now. By Your grace, by the power of Your Spirit, and by the love of Your Son, that will happen. In His name, the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.